Well, good morning, class. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. I've been sick, so I'm on extra medication these days. And so I'll probably have to stop and get a drink of water. I may cough. Uh, So you'll bear with me. I just couldn't stay away another week. I wanted to be here with my class. And we did miss you guys last week. But it was an absolute necessity. Now, what I want to do today is, because of the gap in time uh, since the last time we met, I'd like to just review just a little bit, because as we go into chapter 4 and in chapter 5, we're beginning the preparation for the judgments that come in the tribulation period. And in chapter 4, we're going to see that the supervision, that's your word, the supervision of the judgment is in the hands of the Father. And then in chapter 5, your word is the execution of the judgments, and that's under the Son. And then when we get to chapter 6 and following, we'll have a description of the judgments. So it's going to be the supervision, the execution, And then finally, the description of the various judgments. Now, like I say, before we begin, I want to do a little review that brings us up to where we are in the book. But let's let's pray first. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to share the word of God today. Strengthen me, Lord, as I'm weak. And by your spirit, Minister to each of our hearts today as we look at the word and see uh, what is coming in the future. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, by way of review, I want you to go with me back to chapter uh, 3. And I want you to look with me, first of all, at at verse 7 through 13, the church at Philippi. And in particular we found that the rapture is found here, that we are taken out. We're not taken from, we're taken out of it. We have nothing to do with this uh, tribulation uh, situation that's coming on the nation of Israel and the rest of the world. But when you get to verse 10, uh, by way of uh, reminding, uh, notice in verse 10 the promise that's given to us about the tribulation period. He says, Because you kept the word of my preservation, I also will keep you out of the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come come upon the whole world, uh, and those who dwell on the earth. Now, let's look at that for a second. I want you to notice that it talks about a particular time, the hour, this the particular hour that has been uh, pointed out to us and prophesied to us uh, throughout the Old Testament. It is also a specific trial. Notice the hour of the trial or the testing. And then notice it has a scope about it. The hour of the testing Uh, the hour which is about to come on the whole world. 
This is a worldwide tribulation period and judgment period. And then there's a particular target group. Notice what it says. Upon the whole earth and those who dwell upon the earth. Talking about uh, the human beings that inhabit the earth at this particular point. And then, of course, we go back and remind you that he, he says, I will keep you out of it. Right? I will keep you out of it. Now, the second thing that I think is necessary as we review is that still in chapter 3, we come to the Laodicean church. Now, the obvious question to ask, class, is if the church has been raptured, according to chapter uh, 3 and the Philadelphia church, whenever that's over, then we go into the Laodicean church. What do you mean, a church? If the church is raptured, what is this church? Well, all you got to do is look at it a little bit, and you realize it is the unsaved church. It is the church that's really not relating to Jesus Christ at all. They're not part of the body of Christ. Now, look what it says, verse 14. And the angel of the church of Laodicea. We have emphasized the meaning of the different words, uh, the different names of the cities. This is a very interesting one. The word Laodicea in our English is made up of two Greek words. One, uh, laos, which means people. And then a verb, which means judge. In other words, this church is made up of people who make their own decisions and devise their own theology that fits into what they want. And so when you get down a little bit further, you understand how serious it is. He says, Jesus says in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. He's outside and he's knocking on the door. If, if there's anybody, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come unto him and dine with him uh, and, and he will be with me. Now, that's a sad state of affairs for the last segment, the last phase of the church. It is a church that makes up their own mind about what they believe. And it is a church that because of that, Jesus is standing outside knocking and asking permission to come in. And the indication seems to be that there's not any kind of movement as a result of that. There may be some, uh, but the indication seems to be that there's not a, res a response. Now, the, the, another thing I want to mention, if chapter 3 tells us the rapture is occurring, we're taken out, only thing left is an unsaved church where Jesus is standing outside the door, then the church is gone. And the observation that I made with you the last time we were together, two weeks ago, was that there is no mention of the church, the ecclesia. It's not mentioned anywhere from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22 and verse 16. And that's in the new heavens and the new earth and the holy city Jerusalem is coming down from above. 
It's after the millennial kingdom and all that kind of thing. Then the church is mentioned again. But during the tribulation period, no mention. Why? Church is gone. Everybody with me? Now, the other thing that I want you to see, and we've already mentioned it, chapter 4 is the Father's supervision of judgment. Chapter 5 is the Son's execution of the judgment. And then when we get to chapter 6, we have a description of the various judgments. Now, let's look at it. This is a section where there are some people that would look at this and say, well, this is revelation, but, you know, this really doesn't deal with prophecy and all that. What it's dealing with is God is in control, and he deserves our worship. And the problem is the tribulation folk, the people that are left, are people that have rejected all of that. So in heaven, there is an ongoing honoring and worshiping of God the Father, Spirit, and Son. Okay, so that's what we're going to see. Now let's look at it. I want you to notice that as we get into chapter 4, we see the supervision. And the first thing we see in verses 1 to 3 is the position of the Father. Look what the text says. After these things, whoops, we got to stop. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 19, I want you to write the things that are, that's that vision that John saw of the Lord Jesus in chapter 1. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, we have uh, the churches. What you have seen, what is going on, 2 and 3. And then in 4 and following, you've got the things after those things. Everybody with me? So that picks up our outline by reminding us of what it said in chapter 1, verse 19. So it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Then he says, And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, that's chapter 1, verse 10, speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you What must take place after these things? There's that phrase again. Immediately, verse 2, it says, I was in the Spirit. Now, I remind you of what we're talking about there. Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. The Spirit is in us, and so on. What does that preposition mean? Uh, Is Christ bodily inside of I don't think that's what it's trying to say. Uh, what it's trying to say is there is an intimacy that is so strong, it's like we're inside of each other. There's a bond there, an intimacy. So, and we're under his control. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. There's the father. Then he says, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like the emerald in appearance. Now, class, I have no idea what the, all of that means, other than John is trying to describe for us the majesty and the splendor of God. And these are the kinds of words that he tries to use. Now, look at verse 4. 
He's sitting on the throne. In other words, he's in control. He is the supervisor of all that is about to take place. And in verse 4, his position in verses 1 and 3 succumbs to the praise to the Father in verse 4 through the end of the chapter. Now look what it says in verse 4. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders uh, sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Now let's stop. What in the world are the 24 elders? All kinds of uh, identities have been made available to us. I use the term a lot of paper and ink. But when you finally just think it through long enough and everybody builds on everybody else, we discover the weaknesses in each position. And as time goes on, we begin to crystallize what is probably the best answer as to the identity. Let me make a couple of observations. These are not angels. The text says they are people that have white garments. That's the righteousness that is given to save people. Uh, They have crowns on their heads. Angels don't get crowns. They are not part of salvation. They don't get white garments. Uh, So the answer that we have to come up with is that uh, these are representatives of humankind, saved humankind. Angels don't sit on thrones. They don't get reward. Men do because they're part of the plan of salvation. Everybody understand? Now the question is, what group? of humanity are we talking about? If we decide it's humanity, and I think that is a correct conclusion, what part of humanity? Well, if we go back, and and we're not going to turn to it, but if you go back to Daniel chapter 12, you remember that Daniel was told that when the Antichrist is finally defeated, after these things, then there will be Those who will be rescued, that is, the dead will be resurrected. He talks about the resurrection of uh, dead Israelis that were part of the family of God. And uh, they are resurrected at the end of the millennial or at the end of the tribulation period to go into the millennial kingdom. The other thing that we saw as we looked at that is we tried to amplify it. The resurrection of church saints has, happens at the rapture. The resurrection of uh, uh, Israelis that know the Lord comes at the end of the tribulation period, so they go into the millennial kingdom. So that's in the beginning. When you get to Revelation chapter 20, and we've looked at it before, I'm not going to take the time to do it now, but in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 to 6, we have the resurrection of tribulation saints. So there's your three groups of humanity. Two of them have not experienced resurrection and glorified bodies yet. That's Israel and that's tribulation. The only group that's left that is resurrected and glorified are the church saints. Am I making some sense here? There's logic there, I think. 
So what we have then is that the 24 elders are not, for example, some would say some of the apostles, 12 apostles, and then 12 representatives from Israel. It's not that. It is all 24 are representatives of the church that has been resurrected and that is in heaven. Everybody with me? Now, notice what it says in verse 5. Oh, by the way, there's one other thing we'll look at. The function of these 24 elders has to do with worship, and we'll see that in in just a second. But notice in verse 5, And from the throne proceeded flashings of lightning and sounds and perils of thunder. I think we might get some of that tonight. I hope not. But uh, the wind and the rain and the lightning were all in the hands of God. Amen. So we leave it there. And uh, he says, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And we remember we looked at uh, Isaiah 11, the seven spirits of God, talking about the different dimensions of uh, the spirit of God and his function in the Godhead. And then in verse 6, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, 24 li- or four living creatures, full of eyes in the front and behind. Now, who in the world are the four living creatures? T- took me a lot of years to finally figure that one out. When one, one commentator just pointed me to the Old Testament and said, dummy, that's where it is. So let's look at it. I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel. Hold your place here. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 1. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Ezekiel chapter 1. Who are these living creatures that are mentioned here who are the leaders of worship? Uh, We'll see in a minute. Notice that in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel's by the river Chebar. A lot of interaction between Ezekiel the prophet and God and Daniel by the way at the river Chebar river Chebar is probably man-made canal by the way it's what history seems to uh, teach us notice verse 5 and within it that is in the glowing metal in the midst of the fire part of the description of the scene he saw uh, within it were figures resembling four living beings. See that? And each of them had four faces and four wings. Notice verse 10. And the form of their faces, uh, each had a face of a man. Uh, all four had the face of a lion. And, uh, and the, there was a face of a bull. And there was a face of an eagle. See that? That's going to be brought up when we read the next verses in chapter 4. Now go over with me to Ezekiel uh, chapter 10. And Ezekiel tells us exactly who these living creatures are. They're cherubim. Notice verse 15. Then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw at the river Chebar. So what we have, class, is that there are four angels according to Ezekiel 
chapter 10 and verse 15, along with what we find in uh, chapter 1. Uh, and they are called the living uh, creatures here <clears throat> in the book of Revelation. Now notice, there's in the latter part of verse 6, back in chapter 4 of Revelation now, the four living creatures full of eyes front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. Notice now he changes it a little bit. And Ezekiel seems to say they all had the, all of the faces. Here he mentions each one has a particular kind of face. I don't think there's a contradiction there. He's emphasizing one thing over the other for each one. And the first creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. The third creature had the face like a man. And the fourth creature had a, like a flying eagle. Now, what does all that mean? And I'm going to give you what has been the general consensus, educated guess, of what these attributes are. When you talk about the lion, that's majesty and strength. He's the king of the beast. Okay? Uh, and then you have one of the calf, the bull. What did the bull do? He's a worker. And then the third is like a man human being that has rational thinking and logical thinking capability. And then the final one is the, the flying eagle. He's flying over top. He supervises above uh, everything. And so that seems to be the best explanation that's been given. But these are very capable beings. They are cherubim, according to Ezekiel. Now, notice what it says in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them, having six wings and full, are full of eyes, round and within, and day and night they cease not to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. Now, class, I look at that, and in my carnal state, I say, what night and day unending worship? I, I don't understand that. Does anybody feel that kind of response? But there, the emphasis on is on the fact that he is the worthy God who is in control and constant worship is due to him. And it involves the 24 reps of the humankind that are resurrected and the, the uh, angels are leading the way. Notice, holy, 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 that's his purity. The Lord God, there's his deity. Uh, the Almighty, there's his ability. Uh, who was, who is, who is to come, there's his eternality. There's all meaning there for us. Then notice what it says. And when the Living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks. By the way, the word glory is a word from doxa, doxa, doxon here in a particular form. And it, is a, it has to do with a mental capacity, an evaluation, coming to a position of who is this person. That, and we give glory because of how we perceive him to be. Okay, so he says, 
And the creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. And the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, and here's their words of worship, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things. And because of your will, because you wanted them in existence, they came into existence, and you're the one that brought them into existence. There's the emphasis in the text. By your will, they existed and were created. So there is chapter 4. Supervision by the Father who is receiving all of this glory and honor and power and position because he's recognized as God. Amen? Now, we go to chapter 5. And all of a, all of a sudden... It changes from God the Father and the mention of the Holy Spirit there to the Son. Notice verse 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Here's the execution of judgment. Remember, supervision by the Father in chapter 4. We have the execution of judgment by the Son in chapter 5. And I saw, verse 1, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, there's the Father, a book written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. Now again, what is this book? There are one or two commentators that suggest this is the title deed to the universe and that somehow Christ is working at making that a final uh, move in the direction of his total ownership. I have a hard time with that. The Father uh, has already declared that in chapter uh, uh, Psalm 1 and many, many other places that uh, he is in charge. Now, notice and has it all. I would suggest that the identity of the book is not title deed uh, that he gets back by judging, uh, but uh, it is the Lamb's book of life. That's what's mentioned in several places. Is found back in chapter 3, verse 5. It's found in chapter 13, verse 8. It's found again in chapter 17, verse 8. So the book that is mentioned throughout this book of Revelation is the Lamb's book. And it has in there the names of people who've been written from the foundation of the world all the way up to the present time. There's been no erasure of their name out of the book. They've been there from the foundation of the world. Everybody with me? Now, I think that's what we have here. And so the Father is holding this Lamb's book of life. Then notice in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seal? In other words, we're now going to talk about the execution of the judgment. Who is worthy to do that? And verse 3 says, And there was no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Now, stop there a second. I'm impressed as the years go by 
with statements like this about under the earth. And I'm so inclined to want to say to you that because of those kinds of comments, I believe hell, Hades, all of that is in the inner core of the earth. I know there's going to be a new heavens, new earth, and all that. But understand what I'm saying. I'm suggesting that there's something inside that molten lava inside the earth. That's where people live and not burn, burn up, I should say. Okay? Now, you can do with that what you will. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly, John said, because there was no one found worthy to open the book or to look into it. In other words, he knows this is about the judgments. And is it going to be stalled? Is there anyone worthy to take the book and bring about the execution, to break the seals? And then it says, and one of the elders, one of the 24 elders from verse 4, said to me, stop weeping. Behold the lamb of the tribe of Judah. That reference is in the Old Testament in Genesis 49 and in Matthew 1 it talks about it. In Hebrews 7 it talks about the lamb from the tribe of Judah. And then the root of David has overcome. That's another reference to Isaiah 11 and so on. All those passages that describe Christ in this way. He's the lion out of the tribe of Judah. He's the root out of David. Has overcome and so as to open the book and its seven seals. John, stop your weeping. The Lamb of God is worthy. He can open the book. And then we notice when you get to verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders the Lamb standing. All of a sudden, the Lamb is recognized. The Lamb standing, as it were, slain, uh, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent upon all the earth. And he, that is the Lamb, he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's the Father. Gives the book to the Son. And when he had taken the book, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having one harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, now watch it, Worthy art thou to take the book, to break its seals, for thou wast slain and did, uh, didst the purchase for God by with your blood men from every tribe. Look at that. From every tribe, tongue, people, nation. And I'm glad to say when we look at, at the congregation of our church here, Glen Iris, we have representatives from a lot of different cultures and nations. What's happened? The gospel has penetrated around the world through the missionary efforts of churches like the Philadelphia Church. Now, we still got a ways to go, but the idea is the word is spreading. And, uh, and here it is a done deal in Revelation uh, chapter 5. 
And so he's purchased those people. Then notice verse 10. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Praise the Lord. We're going to be with him in heaven, and we're going to rule and reign with him. Now, who is he talking about here? He's not talking about Israel yet. He's not talking about tribulation saints yet. What is, who is he talking about? He's talking about us, the body of Christ uh, that is has been resurrected and is in heaven. Then notice verse 11. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. All these people worshiping the Lord. And what are they saying? Verse 12. Saying with a loud voice, worthy, there it is again, the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now notice in verse 13 you have praise. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all of the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Look at that emphasis on worship class when they're in heaven. It makes me feel guilty. Uh, one of the things I've discovered in the last years where I've emphasized prayer is that I'm discovering I want to spend at least as much, if not more time, worshiping than I do interceding. Does that make sense to you? In my early ministry, prayer was all about talking to God and asking him to take care of my problems. But as time goes by, uh, that I think all of us begin to sense the majesty and the power and the desire to worship God. And I'm finding that in my prayer life. And the four living creatures, verse 14, kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down. And they worshiped. Now, class, chapter 4 and chapter 5 about worshiping the Father who supervises the judgment. And then uh, chapter 5, the worship of the Son who's going to carry out the judgments. He has the Lamb's Book of Life now, and he's going to begin to break the seven seals. Everybody with me? Now, We've got a little bit of time left. And I, what I want to do is go into these judgments in chapter 6. Remember, supervision, execution. Now chapter 6 and following, we have the description of the judgments as the Lamb begins to break the seals on the Lamb's Book of Life. And you have all heard, I think Billy Graham, for example, wrote a book called the seven horsemen of the apocalypse. I think he's the one that wrote it. Everybody talks about the world. Here it is. Now let's just work it out and uh, see what it has to say. And when I saw the lamb uh, break one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, uh, as with a voice of thunder, come, 
So, John, I want you to see this. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it uh, had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, a lot of people say, oh, white horse, that's the good guy. That's what he wants you to think. The bad guy wants to appear as a good guy. He really has a black hat, not a white hat. Everybody with me? You've heard all that kind of terminology. Well, that's what we've got here. And I want you to hold your place here in Revelation 6, and I want you to go with me to Matthew 24. There's a parallel. Scripture compared to Scripture helps us to understand. Revelation chapter 6, hold your place and go with me to Matthew 24. And it's in Matthew 24 where we have the discourse that's telling us about the future. Matthew 24. And I want you to look at verse 5 of uh, chapter 24. Notice what it said. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Well, that's exactly what is happening in chapter 6 when you get to this uh, verse 2. Behold, the white horse and he that sat upon it. He is appearing to be the Lamb, the Son of God, but he is really Satan who is going forth to conquer because there's going to be a lot of those guys around. And you've heard of even in our, our lifetime, people claiming to be Messiah. And so, remember Moon, for example, all those kinds of guys. Then notice verse 2. And I looked, uh, or verse 3, and when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. So, okay, John, want to see something else. And another red horse went out uh, to him who sat on it, and it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should be slain should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So here is a second seal that is broken, and it's worldwide conflict. Uh, the Antichrist leads the way, but it becomes a global conflict. And then if you go back to Matthew 24 and verse 6 and 7, after there's the mention of the many people that will come claiming to be uh, the Messiah, you read in verse 6, And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and so on. Uh, and uh, go back to 6 again of Revelation. Very quickly. Notice verse 5. And when he broke the third seal, I heard a third living creature saying, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he that sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius. In other words, day, day's wages. You've probably heard this before. Day's wages for one quart of uh, wheat. And do not harm the oil. And, and so we have there a shortage of famine. Well, go back to Matthew 24. 
after the mention of wars, uh, at the end of verse 7, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. All of these things are the beginning of the birth pangs. Uh, now, class, just think about it. You have the Antichrist going forth. You have global conflict and uh, war and rumors of war, nation rising against nation, so on. What happens? You end up with uh, no food supply. Everything's destroyed. So you end up with famine. It happens in every war, everywhere in the world. And that's exactly what it's going to have here. But it's going to be on a global scale. Now, very quickly, that that's, is the third and, the, and then the, the fourth seal. Notice verse 7. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the, four, uh, of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who was set on his name was death. And Hades following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth. Now look at that. Over a fourth of the earth. To kill with the sword, with famine and pestilence and wild beasts of the earth. Now, this is where I'm going in. But this is the first set of judgments. And uh, we get to the fourth one, and it says 25% of humankind are killed. Now, whenever I'm teaching Revelation, I have my wife look up population of the world and then population of different continents and countries. Right now, the world population is at 7.3 billion people. You ready for the calculation? 25% of 7.3 billion people. Now, class, if you're wanting to take the Bible literally, what it's saying, 1.83 billion people are killed. Did you hear me? 1.83 billion. Now, let me give you a comparison. The population of Africa is 1.38 billion. This is more than the entire population of the continent of Africa. That's what the tribulation is going to be like. Aren't you glad? You're not going to have to deal with that. Think about handling all of those corpses. What kind of manpower is going to be involved? What kind of stench is going to be involved? What kind of diseases are going to come as a result of all of that? And the loss of life. More than the continent of Africa. This is just one judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to comprehend what we're reading 
as we work our way through uh, these various judgments that are going to be described for us all the way through chapter 19. Lord, I want to stop and thank you on behalf of our entire class that, Lord, we are not going to be part of this, that you promised to take us out of it all through the rapture of the church. Thank you, Lord, for that deliverance that we have, not only of salvation from sin, but from the tribulation judgments as well. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.